America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And there are lots of Americans who still consider this nation to be the greatest on earth, despite the fact that our two political parties not so great. I mean, if you look at basically the polling on this, the number of people who identify as Republicans, which, by the way, has gone up pretty sharply in the recent polls, the Republican Party is still a minority of people, even a minority of people in the party, according to some polls, approve of where it is, where it is going. The same is true of Democrats. We have actually two-thirds of Americans, more than, who now believe we're headed in the wrong direction. Uh, both parties stink, says Matt Bai. Matt Bai is a columnist who I've always enjoyed uh, for the Washington Post. He's a uh, journalist, he's an author, and he's a screenwriter. He spent more than a decade at the New York Times, where he was the chief political writer for the Sunday magazine and a columnist for the newspaper. He uh, came out with a column recently that I thought was outstanding, and I'm glad to talk to him about it. He said, I reject both parties' ideas of Americanism, and I'm not the only one. So let me ask you this, Matt. In practical terms, you've for a long time talked about the possibility of an independent or a third-party candidate getting elected as president. Do you think we're ready for that? Um, what a good question to start. It's, it's good to talk. Thank you for having me back, Michael. It's always nice to talk to you. I appreciate the intro. And uh, yeah, I, I, I do think we're ready for that. I think I think we're only missing one thing, actually, uh, and that's the candidate, which is not a small thing because I don't believe, uh, well, you know, to be clear about it, I don't believe we're we're looking at third party. I think people are tired of parties. I think the culture has moved away from joining and moved away from institutional affiliations. And I, I think what Trump showed is the power of personality essentially over over the power of party. And so I, I don't think we'll see a, a new party in America. I think we will eventually, uh, inevitably, see a personality outside the two-party system who will dominate and change that system. Uh, the barriers that have always existed in terms of money, ballot access, party loyalty, they've all been basically obliterated. Um, but but you do need somebody with a fair amount of uh, name recognition and resources, probably, and something to say. And to this point, um, that person hasn't hasn't stepped forward, and I don't know who it is. But I, but the conditions have never been more hospitable. Well, I, again, I, I I know that I was trying to go through my own mind, thinking about okay, who is it who would have the star power and the charisma? and the desire to possibly run uh, outside the traditional two-party system and get elected as president. And, you know, there's only one likely third-party winner if it came to that, and you know who it is. Tell me. I'd love it's to know. It's Donald Trump. And it's one of the reasons <laughs> that so many yeah, anti-Trump anti Republicans, like me, um, are so terribly worried about this this next big election because i think it's possible that uh, trump would not win at this point in his career he would not necessarily win the republican nomination and if it looks like he would have a serious challenge for the republican nomination uh he could probably make 
more money and gain more support if he just uh, had the America First Party. And and you can see it. It's it's something else new that he could announce that would make clear that the whole purpose of the endeavor was to promote him personally rather than a bunch of the rhinos that he uh, he has contempt for. That's a great point, Michael. I mean, I, I could see, not only could I see that scenario, I could also see him running, you know, what we sort of call a sour grapes campaign, right, losing a Republican primary, or or at least, you know, looking like he's losing a Republican primary, which I don't rule out, uh, because he's never faced a binary choice or anything like it with the Republican electorate, and deciding to, to go as an independent anyway, just to keep the the brand alive and create as much havoc as possible would almost certainly lead to a, a Democratic win, I think. But, uh, but you know, it would be interesting in your scenario if he runs an independent, does that draw other independents? You know, is there an Oprah-type figure out there or a Mark Cuban or somebody who says, well, if he's going to go, I'm going to go. Right? I, I just think, I think somebody, what, what, what Trump showed us, and actually President Obama to an extent before him, was that you could commandeer a party uh, successfully with the power of personality, that the party regulars didn't decide anymore who people would vote for. I think the next iteration of our political change, which is happening quickly, even though it feels to us like it's not, is that uh, someone will show the, the, the ability of an independent to transcend the party system. And once that happens, um, it will be impossible to stop. I think it will be, it will be an invitation to a, to a whole lot of people to get involved and a different kind of political process that I can't really predict. Well, what, where, how would an independent transcend the two-party system? I mean, I know Andrew Yang is trying to do that with his forward party. That's probably not the answer. Right. Um, but it, it just seems to me that uh, most independents who have gotten elected on the statewide level are, are well, like Joe Lieberman for his last term in the Senate. Mm -hmm. was elected mm -hmm. as an independent. Remember, Jesse Ventura was an independent governor of Minnesota, and that didn't work out particularly well at all. Uh, where have we seen this as a viable model in recent American politics? I spent a lot of time with, with Jesse Ventura, actually. Uh, it, was a, it was a complicated four years, but it, it was very formative in my thinking about this. I, I mean, on the presidential, on the national level, we've seen it I think the most um, the most uh, impressive foray we've seen, and it's before a lot of the times of people now looking at politics, was Ross Perot, right, in, in uh, 1992, who, who uh, helped probably helped Clinton get elected. But Perot did, what, 18 percent of the vote, I think, his first time out, which was he did. staggering. He did that, at that time, quite staggering for a, uh, an, independent, an independent candidate. No one, no one had heard of really before then. He had a lot of money. Now the money is actually less important, and I think the system is actually more uh, hospitable. I think, I think what, the, the blueprint isn't really hard to see in my mind. You take a celebrity candidate um, uh, or somebody with a lot of resources, a good story to tell. You wait out the primary process, which is a process through which both parties' nominees are uh, inevitably beaten down and discredited and, and wear themselves out way too much in the minds of the electorate, so that by the time they're done, people have all kinds of doubts about them. And then you, you jump in late. Uh, what you need, the ballot access laws are, are difficult because they're state by state. They're designed to be difficult. But, you know, with enough money and organization uh, in advance of the campaign, 
you can certainly, uh, you know, thanks to the Internet, more than ever, you can certainly organize a campaign to get on those ballots, and you can certainly get into the debate uh, if you're polling at, a, at, a, at an even, you know, modestly impressive level. So I, I would say, you know, if somebody came to me and said, hey, is this doable? I would say, yeah, it's really doable. Plan for it, spend some money, do some organizing, and, and get in late. I think that's the plan. Okay, there's another plan, and I, I hope we can uh, spend a few more moments and talk about it, which is uh, the Republicans are talking about putting together what's called a commitment uh, to America, which would be like the contract with America, which would have some areas of agreement that could bring the various factions of the uh, party together for what uh, Republicans hope will be a resounding victory on the House level and the Senate level coming up. Uh, isn't it possible that a, a, a great deal of what you are talking about here as discrediting the Republican Party could be taken care of by a really energizing new Republican majority that could arrive on Capitol Hill and help to redefine the party away from Trumpism? Uh, we will get to that and and more with Matt Bai, columnist for the Washington Post, read all around the world, and more coming up on the Medved Show. I'm, of course, deeply honored to receive the Michael Medved Show. My pleasure to be speaking again to uh, Matt Bai, nationally syndicated columnist through the uh, Washington Post. He uh, has written a, a terrific column that I think is worth everyone reading. It's going to offend everyone. If you're a committed Republican, a committed uh, Democrat, uh, you won't like this because he has harsh words for both parties right now. And uh, the the question, Matt, really becomes usually when there have been very, very polarized situations where both parties uh, seem unable to work on what uh, Arthur Schlesinger called the vital center, basically to actually concentrate on actually getting things done for the American people. They're too busy trying to destroy one another. A lot of that has had to do with, like, profound differences on on issues but that's not really the case with this crisis is it well there are i would say there are profound differences on the issues michael but but you're what you're getting at i think you're right is that the, the more profound divide here is almost cultural demographic uh it's 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 really about um you know our version of america i mean there there there's an we have in America more than ever before, I would say, a common, almost a, a common culture, a commonality of media, of um, of stores and products and and design, and you know, one city to the other. As you know, when you travel around America, every place in America more or less looks like every place else, which wasn't the case 50 years ago, and certainly not 100 years ago. Um, and yet, I think because of that, there is this 
battle for whose interpretation of the culture, whose interpretation of Americanness will prevail. Uh, it's, it's no longer a country of regions. It's one entire uh, country under a single federal government. And for that reason, uh, I think the stakes of who controls that is very high. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and so I guess counterintuitively, even though we share so much more than we used to in our daily experiences, we, 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 we've broken off into tribes uh, that consume different media, that, uh, that have different values, that look to different icons. Uh, and, uh, you know, as many people have pointed out, it essentially creates a, a duality uh, in the country that is probably cultural before it, it has to do with the issues and, and results in really every two years uh, sort of death struggle for who's going to control Congress and every four years who's going to control the White House. And it seems to come down to a very small number of votes. Okay, what do you say, Matt, by to... Uh, Republicans who point out that uh, just today the uh, uh, Gallup organization says that 47% of Americans call themselves Republicans, while only 42% say they're Democrats. And by the way, I, I, one year ago it was the other direction. One year ago, only 40% uh, said Republican, 49% said Democrats. So. The Democrats have lost uh, some uh, nine points of identification, while the Republicans have uh, gained seven points of identification. Why are the Republicans, who control nothing in Washington, uh, basically, you could say, well, they're Republican appointees who dominate the Supreme Court, but leave the Supreme Court aside. Don't control the House, don't control the Senate, don't control the presidency. So the party in power right now has become, has lost 9% identification in one year. And uh, Republicans can look at that and say, well, we're doing just fine. I mean, there may be people like uh, Matt Bai who are disillusioned with us, but uh, look at the polls and look at the expected victory that Republicans, yeah. I think, have every reason to expect coming up in the fall. Yeah, well, they're not doing just fine. And you, you pointed to the truth of the matter when you talk about the volatility of those numbers year to year. What, uh, we're, in a, we're in a cycle now. We've seen this pattern now. for uh, Most of the time I've been covering politics, and that's a long time. I mean, we're talking about decades now, uh, where the public is dissatisfied, um, particularly the, the, the sort of broad center of the country is very dissatisfied. Independents are really dissatisfied. And they sort of ping-pong back and forth to whoever's out of power and has less responsibility for the mess. And you know, we've had more wave elections. We've had every president lose control of Congress, you know, going back, I think, four administrations. Now that's unprecedented. Uh, we've had, you know, we, they, we, we keep having majorities tossed out and replaced. People forget, if you've grown up, if you're 30 years old in this country, you have no idea. That didn't happen for, you know, more than a handful of times in 75, 80 years in America, you know, for most of the 20th century. Yeah, so, after after the New Deal, the uh, the Democrats controlled the House of Representatives for forty years. Yeah, That's and then again a long for time. thirty years. I mean, there was a small break in there, but you know, they, the Democrats dominated Congress for the better part of seventy years, and and you know, and and Republicans for a lot of that time controlled the White House, but. It was, uh, you know, we, we, we have a tremendous amount of instability now, and that's a, that's a dissatisfaction. And the pattern we have now is as soon as somebody wins an election based on nothing but lack of incumbency, they sweep into town. This is, I, I say into town here because I'm in Washington. They sweep into town declaring that they're 
agenda, such as it is, which really it never is all that great, has been ratified, they proceed to overreach and try to somehow transform or dismantle the government, depending on which party we're talking about. And within 18 months, everybody's dissatisfied again and moving over to the other side. So we have this constant, uh, mis this, this kind of willful misinterpretation of the electorate, when really all the electorate is saying, Democrat, Republican, year in, year out, is, is stop this craziness and govern responsibly and pragmatically. And, um, and that never happens. So I, I put very little stock in the party numbers because year to year, all they're really telling you is that people are fed up and want a better government uh, than they have and, and, and the government that, frankly, they deserve. Can you imagine a situation where what we get in 2024 is a, a rematch between the two aging baby boomers, uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump? Yeah, it's funny. Somebody said on I was perusing Twitter the other day, which is a very bad idea generally. And somebody said that <laughs> somebody congratulated the New York Times crossword puzzle, of which I'm a great devotee, because it turned 80. And, and my comment was, well, now it's old enough to run for president, right? But I, <laughs> I, I think uh, I, I don't think we're going to see that. I mean, look, nobody. I don't. I don't have a crystal ball. Sure, we could flash forward, and that could be the case. But there's a lot of instability on both sides. I think on the Republican side, like I said earlier, Trump has really only faced uh, a very crowded and divided field in the establishment of the Republican Party. So depending on how many people are willing to take a race against him, if he wants to run again, I think the math could be very different for him. It's not an easy run, uh, although he certainly would be a favorite. And then on the Democratic side, everything I'm hearing, as I'm sure everything you're hearing, uh, tells me that it's that you know most people consider it unlikely that President Biden runs for re-election. I know he's saying he will. I'm sure he has not made that decision with any finality. He may think he wants to, but uh, I, I don't think that decision's been made. And I think there's as much chance as not that he'll that he will. But you don't think there's much chance for Kamala Harris, do you? Uh, I don't see her as uh, like most people. I don't see her as a. Incredibly strong candidate, certainly the vice presidency doesn't confirm <laughs> on you. That's, though, that's very, gonna, very mild judgment a there. Yeah, a very mild and measured judgment. Matt, by appreciate it. Your column is posted on our website about I reject both parties' ideas of Americanism. Right, let's cultivate a better idea of Americanism. We'll be right back. Medved show, as we try to emphasize on this show all the time, not all the news you get is bad. Now, are, is there anyone out there who takes this as bad news? Here's the headline, a headline from the Wall Street Journal, not from the New York Times, not from the Washington Post. It's from the conservative-minded Wall Street Journal headline, Vaccine During Pregnancy Protects Babies. Okay, babies, of course, are uh, vulnerable. I mean, anybody who's held a newborn, uh, that newborn needs protection. One of the ways you get protected, says this report in the Wall Street Journal, is getting a COVID-19 injection and booster while you're pregnant. Uh, listen to this. Babies born to mothers who got vaccinated during pregnancy 
were significantly less likely to be hospitalized for COVID-19. A study led by federal researchers showed, adding to growing evidence of the benefits of maternal vaccination. A study published Tuesday by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that's two days ago, uh, found that uh, COVID-19 vaccination during pregnancy was 61% protective, meaning that uh, babies who were less than six months old, when uh, whose mothers were vaccinated, were 61% less likely to be hospitalized with uh, COVID-19. Among uh, babies with COVID-19 admitted to the ICU, uh, 88% were born to mothers who were not vaccinated before or during pregnancy. And that's pretty telling, isn't it? When you think that 80% of these babies who were born in trouble were born sick with uh, uh, COVID-19, 88% were unvaccinated mothers. The uh, study strengthened evidence that COVID-19 shots provide protection to babies through vaccination for pregnant women. We have overwhelming data that the vaccine protects women from death and serious outcomes. Uh, this is another piece of information and another piece of data that uh, vaccinating pregnant women also protects infants from bad outcomes as well. So said Linda Eckert, who is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology right here at the University of Washington. Okay, I think that's good news. And then there's there's other news that is, really it's just strange and it's complicated how to feel about it because uh, one of the problems we have in the United States, of course, is that uh, jackpot justice particularly with various liability suits, sometimes with defamation suits. I mean, that's the one main reason that um, I was actually kind of gratified at the outcome of the Sarah Palin New York Times trial, because I think we have too many people who sue uh, on too many flimsy bases just on the chance that they may get some kind of settlement, that they may make money, and that uh, the person you're going after will just decide, you know what, I, I, I'm going to settle this because I will save me untold millions in legal fees. Okay, the headline, Sandy Hook gun settlement reached. Uh, the settlement was uh, a lot of money. It's $73 million to be paid by uh, Remington, a uh, gun maker who's already in total bankruptcy, by the way. There's no telling where they're going to get the money. In fact, they're not going to get the money. It's being paid by their insurance companies. They were insured against liability settlements, and so the insurance companies are paying $73 million to the Sandy Hook victims. Now, look, when you, you've lost a child in a horrible situation like that, there's not enough money in the world that can make up for it. But the uh, settlement is the largest of its kind and the first since a federal law was enacted in 2005 providing gun makers with broad protection from liability in the unlawful use of their weapons said Timothy Litton Georgia State University College law professor the the point about this is the protections that were passed 
were against being sued if the gun didn't function properly, if the gun blew up in your hand or something like that. Of course you could sue then. But basically saying, why are you suing gun makers for manufacturing a legal product, and guns are a legal product, we do have a Second Amendment, uh, for manufacturing a legal product that has, has not shown to be defective in some way. The essence of this was they were talking about the ads that were used in various places. Uh, the family sued Remington under Connecticut's Unfair Trade Practices Act, which is a broad consumer protection uh, that uh, prohibits unfair, deceptive ads in commerce. They said Remington violated that law because it promoted materials for the Bushmaster rifle that encouraged violent behavior. Uh, they uh, we had a, one ad in particular that cost them $73 million. Is The picture of the gun and the headline was, Consider Your Man Card Restored. And they suggested that this is the kind of appeal that could have reached people like the, the horrible shooter who murdered his mother and and murdered those six teachers and those 20 kids in Newtown, Connecticut. In any event, what's interesting about this is that um, basically uh, it's the insurance companies that forced the settlement. It didn't go to trial. And a lot of legal experts look at this and say if it had gone to trial, it's not at all clear that they would have gotten a settlement like this. And speaking about big settlements, there is this headline, NFL Cowboys pay cheerleaders $2.4 million. And no, it was not for doing anything compromising. It was for a charge the cheerleaders made of something that allegedly happened in, in the locker room five years ago. The Dallas Cowboys paid $2.4 million in settlements to cheerleaders over a 2015 incident in which a top executive was accused of being in their locker room with his cell phone out while they undressed. The allegations were made against Rich Dalrymple, the, Cubs, uh, the club's longtime senior vice president for public relations and communications, who was a top lieutenant for Cowboys owner Jerry Jones. In a statement to ESPN, which earlier reported the settlement, Mr. Dalrymple denied wrongdoing. He didn't respond to a request for comment. A spokesman for the team said the allegations were investigated thoroughly at the time and no wrongdoing was found. Uh, and given that no wrongdoing was found, everyone agrees that if he was in the locker room, and he was, he was there for a matter of seconds. It wasn't even a minute. The question is, was he actually trying to take pictures? They analyzed his cameras and all his accounts and everything. There are no images that implicated him. Uh, Mr. Dalrymple told investigators he was in the room for a matter of seconds before leaving and they had gone in there to use the bathroom, the person said. Months later in May 2016, the team and Mr. Dalrymple agreed to the $2.4 million settlement with the cheerleaders in which Mr. Dalrymple denied the allegation of voyeurism. So in other words, the, the cheerleaders... Um, had to deal with a situation where there was a man who had come into their area while they were changing and had to use the bathroom. 
and they're compensated for $2.4 million. Again, for Dallas Cowboys fans, this may be dreadful, and there are other people who feel about the Cowboys. Anything bad that happens to them, maybe that's good for the world. Speaking of good for the world, a um, staunch liberal, somebody well at, way out to the left, writes a great column saying, you know all those warnings about a coming civil war? They're ridiculous. We'll get to that and more coming up on the Medved Show. Michael Medved show. Uh, Jamel Bowie is a um, uh, he's a, a visiting fellow at the University of Virginia. He's a columnist for the New York Times. He's a very strong uh, spokesperson for the um, uh, issues and and interests of the black community. And Jamel has a terrific column. I mean, I think it's the first time I've read something by him where I agree with it almost entirely. It's shocking. And the headline is, Why We Are Not Facing the Prospect of a Second Civil War. And why haven't you heard more about the sanity that, no, we're not on the verge of a second civil war. We're in a miserable time in terms of our politics and everybody's seems to be angry at one another and the parties are polarized, but no, it's not a civil war. Listen, this is what he says. He says, it has not been uncommon in recent years to hear Americans worry about the advent of a new civil war. Is civil war ahead? The New Yorker asked last month. Is America heading to civil war or secession? CNN wondered on the anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Last week, uh, Representative Adam Kinzinger of Illinois said the, uh, on The View that uh, we have to recognize the possibility of a civil war. I don't think it's uh, too far of a bridge to think that there's a possibility. Uh, Congressman Kinzinger, I respect you a lot, but you're just baseless on that. Uh, this isn't just the media or the political class. It's public opinion, too, writes Jamel Bowie. Uh, in a 2019 survey for the Georgetown Institute of Politics, the average respondent said that the United States was two-thirds of the way toward the edge of a civil war. In a recent poll conducted by the Institute of Politics at Harvard, 35% uh, of voting-age Americans under 30 uh, placed the odds of a second civil war at 50% or higher. Okay, that's amazing. And in a result that says something about the divisions on hand, 52% uh, of Trump voters and 41% of Biden voters said that they at least somewhat agree that it's time to split the country with either red or blue states leaving the Union and forming their own country, according to a survey conducted by the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia, uh, where he is a visiting scholar, he points out. Uh, several related forces are fueling this anxiety from deepening partisan polarization 
and our winner-take-all politics to the sharp divisions across lines of identity, culture, and geography, there is the fact that this country is saturated with guns. So, as well as the reality that many Americans fear demographic change to the point that they're willing to do pretty much anything to stop it. There is also the issue of Donald Trump, his strongest supporters, and their effort to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Americans feel further apart than at any point in recent memory. And as a result, many Americans fear the prospect of organized political violence well beyond what we saw on January 6, 2021. Uh, well, white America has been divided over slavery. Well, here is the, the point that he makes. He makes that there is a serious problem with the narrative. The Civil War we fought in the 19th century was not sparked by division qua division. And while Americans had been divided over slavery for 50 years before the crisis that led to the war in 1861, the uh, Missouri crisis in 1820, the nullification crisis of 1832, the conflict over the war with Mexico in 1846, the Compromise of 1850, they all reflect the degree to which American politics rested on a sectional divide over the future of the slave system. And his point, it seems to me, is absolutely unassailable. It's correct and clearly correct. The growth of an avowedly anti-slavery public in the North wasn't just a challenge to the political influence of the South. It also uh, threatened to undermine the very slave economy itself and thus the economic basis for Southern power. In other words, there was one issue in particular that was a profound moral issue for people in the North who by 1860 had become overwhelmingly anti-slavery. There was, aside from that issue, the issue of the South of economic survival. Because even if you weren't a plantation owner who owned bunches of slaves, even if you had nothing personally to do with the slave system, it was very clear that the prosperity of your entire section was dependent on that issue. And people were willing to sacrifice their lives, not uh, just for the sake of slavery, but for their own economic and sectional benefit. It was the realization of that threat to the South that the election of Abraham Lincoln, whose Republican Party was founded to stop the spread of slavery, and was uh, and who inherited a federal state with the power to do so that uh, pushed southern cities to gamble their future on secession. Uh, they would leave the Union and attempt to forge a slave empire on their own. Uh, the lack of that kind of issue right now, an issue where people feel that uh, if we don't stop these other people, it's worth dying. Is there an issue like that in which we would fight a civil war? Do you think so? If you do, you can give me a call, 1-800-955-1776. And then there's the issue of reparations. Uh, it's Black History Month, and there's a um, museum, a prominent museum in, in Maryland, in Baltimore, that um, that says, a big, big headline, 
Black History Month, Reparations Now, and exploring why and how reparations should and can be paid to affected members of the black community. This discussion will explore why and how reparations should and can be paid. Notice they don't say whether reparations should be paid. It's just they're going to uh, uh, talk about uh, why and how reparations should be paid to black communities affected by legacies of systemic oppression, such as slavery and racial violence in the United States. The conversation will focus on the deep urgency of reparations and how we can all be a part of this important restorative process. Topics will include the past and present economic implications of slavery and racial violence on black people in the U.S., among other issues. And then, of course, all the participants are pro-reparations people. University of Chicago students and nearby residents divide uh, demand that the university, University of Chicago, give $1 billion in reparations to Southside neighborhoods. If the university is going to stay here and be the major presence in this community, they need to do something to contribute to the community, a longtime Woodlawn resident said, as if the University of Chicago didn't contribute to the Southside as it was. The idea of the University of Chicago paying reparations when it wasn't even established until after the Civil War. And then there's a California. Supporters of a federal effort to study reparations for black Americans are closely watching an ongoing debate in California over how to address the wrongs of history and dismantle racist structures. California is the first state in the nation, naturally, to seriously consider some form of statewide reparations for black Americans. The California Reparations Task Force is made up of academics, lawyers, civil rights leaders, lawmakers, and other experts convened by Governor Gavin Newsom, and it is tasked with studying the state's role in perpetuating the legacy of slavery. The task force is expected to recommend proposals to the legislature by next year. Uh, no, they, they won't come out with any proposal before the election because it's toxic. Look at the polling. Uh, polling shows that uh, the black community is divided on the issue of reparations. And uh, that is uh, a astonishing. And uh, we, we are uh, to talk about the effort to sell reparations, you may remember, during the presidential election before the uh, Democratic convention, the issue came up and most of the Democratic candidates favored at least some form of study of reparations. Uh, this is a deeply demented idea. It is wrongheaded in every way. And you talk about something that would divide the country and divide every ethnic group within that ethnic group, this is not a good move for America if we are to remain this greatest nation on God's green earth.